One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of the Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as prime minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. Quote, we called him outlaw, and he was, but fate made him so. When the war came, he was just turned of 15. The border was all aflame with steel and fire and ambuscade and slaughter. He flung himself into a band which had a black flag for a banner and devils for riders. What he did, he did, and it was fearful, but it was war. It was Missouri against Kansas. It was Jim Lane and Jennison against Quantrell, Anderson, and Todd. When the war closed, Jesse James had no home. Proscribed, hunted, shot, driven away from among his people, a price put upon his head. What else could the man do with such a nature except what he did do? He had to live. It was his country. The graves of his kindred were there. He refused to be banished from his birthright, and when he was hunted, he turned savagely about and hunted his hunters. End quote. That's a quote from The Killing of Jesse James by John Newman Edwards, April 1881. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures. Every Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. And today, we'll be looking at the most iconic American outlaw of all time, Jesse James. Jesse made a name for himself robbing trains and banks and stealing horses. He was an excellent gunman and a member of the James Younger Gang. He worked alongside other famous outlaws, including Frank James, Cole, Bob, and Jim Younger, and Bloody Bill Anderson. Jesse's life has inspired countless folk tales, gun shows, books, and movies. Jesse has even been referred to as the Robin Hood of the South. But Jesse James was not a clear-cut hero. In fact, by modern standards, he's more of a terrorist. Jesse and his fellow gang members robbed, tortured, and murdered countless people, including friends and neighbors. They even associated themselves with the KKK. The legends didn't all come from admiring fans, either. Jesse spread embellished stories about himself and the gang. He even submitted his own fabricated accounts to newspapers for publication. These stories grew into the folklore we know today. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Historical Figures, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory. And while you're there, we'd really appreciate if you could leave a five-star review. The story of Jesse James begins in Kentucky with Robert James and Zerelda Cole. Robert James was born in Logan County on July 17, 1818. He was from a well-to-do family who could trace their lineage back to Dr. John Woodson of the Jamestown Settlement. He was working on his bachelor's degree in theology at Georgetown College in Georgetown, Kentucky, when he met Zerelda. 
Zarel de Cole was born January 29, 1825, in Woodford County, Kentucky. When Zarelda was a young child, her father died from a broken neck in a horse accident, leaving her mother widowed with two small children. They lived with Zarelda's grandfather for a time, but her mother remarried. Zarelda's new stepfather did not get along well with her, so Zarelda went to live with some of her mother's relatives in 1840. There, she attended a Catholic school for girls. She was 15 years old when she met the 22-year-old Robert. The two married on December 28, 1841. Zarelda was only 16, so young she had to have a male relative give special permission for the wedding to take place. In 1842, the couple purchased a farm in Clay County, Missouri, to be near Zarelda's family. Missouri, like Kentucky, happened to be a slave state. They brought with them a slave woman named Charlotte. She was in her 30s and came from Zarelda's family. 1850 census records show that Robert purchased five young slaves after moving to Clay County. Nancy, age 11, Alexander, age 9, Maria, age 8, Mason, age 6, and Hannah, just two years old. If some of those ages sound very young, they were. Slaves were considered property and often a capital investment. A young slave like Hannah would have cost around $200, but her value would triple by puberty. Robert was a successful hemp farmer and was used to making these kinds of investments. Zerelda, also from a slaveholding family, was no stranger to it either. Robert was seven years older than Zerelda and an intense and studious man. He was prone to bouts of restlessness and constantly demanded more out of life. Despite their new marriage and Zerelda's pregnancy soon after, he commuted back to Kentucky in order to finish work on his master's in theology. The two had their first child, Alexander Franklin James, on January 10, 1843, one year after their marriage. He went by Frank. Robert finished school in 1844 and began working in the Baptist ministry. His prominent family, high level of education, and business skills made him an excellent speaker and natural leader. Zerelda gave birth to their second child, Robert R. James Jr., on July 19, 1845, a year and a half after Frank. Sadly, the baby died at just one month old. This passing was undoubtedly hard on both parents. Robert Sr. threw himself even deeper into his work, and Zerelda continued to raise Frank and run the farm mostly on her own. The couple tried again, and two years later, on September 5, 1847, Zerelda gave birth to Jesse Woodson James. He and Frank were four and a half years apart. Robert Sr. became more interested in his work than in his family life. His reputation as a preacher grew quickly, necessitating a lot of travel for work. He packed every church he preached at and, based on the success, had to devote more and more of his time to his work. The couple had another child, Susan Lavenia James, on November 25, 1849. Even so, that spring, Robert decided to follow his calling west to preach for the gold miners of California. Jesse, just two years old, begged his father not to go. Robert didn't listen. It was difficult for Jesse not to have his father around, and hard on Zerelda, who was now raising three young children alone. Things weren't easy for Robert, either. The journey was long and arduous, and diseases were common. So it was no surprise that, shortly after arriving in California in August of 1850, Robert came down with cholera. He died on August 18, 1850. News returned to Clay County by that November. Zerelda was officially a widow. Unfortunately, Robert did not leave a written will, which meant that everything went to his children. But because they were underage, they could not legally manage their assets yet. Neither could Zerelda, as a woman, who got nothing. She wasn't even allowed to be the legal guardian of her children, who were officially put in the care of Tillman West, one of their neighbors. Town debt collectors quickly descended on the vulnerable family. They produced documents for Robert's outstanding bills, demanding that Zerelda pay them immediately. When she couldn't, the collectors set up an auction to sell off Robert's estate. 
she had to beg friends and family to help her buy back essential items like beds, kitchenware, and farm equipment. They even auctioned off Alexander, the oldest slave boy, in 1851. Little Jesse and Frank watched as the law and their neighbors preyed on their vulnerable mother, learning quickly that the law did not always serve justice. But Zerelda was a fighter. She made sure the family had what they needed to survive, and even appealed to family and the local church to scrape together the money to start Frank's education. Still, money was tight, and she had little to no legal power as a single woman. So she decided to remarry. On September 30, 1852, when Jesse had just turned five, Zerelda married a man called Benjamin Sims. He was a wealthy farmer, also from Kentucky. He had property and ideally could provide a stable life for Zerelda and her family. She and the children moved in with him. It wasn't exactly a match made in heaven. Jesse hated Sims, later stating that Sims was cruel to him and to Frank, but Zerelda needed the money for her family. Zerelda sent the boys back to the James farm, where they returned to the care of Tillman West in an effort to keep the marriage together. But this attempt to smooth things over failed. By 1853, Zerelda filed for divorce, something that was highly unusual for the time. Zerelda got her separation, though not the way she intended. Sims died January 2, 1854, when he was thrown from a horse. Widowed again, Zerelda returned to her children and the farm, though everything still remained legally in the care of neighbor Tillman West. On September 25, 1855, when Jessie was eight, she married a third time, this time for good. Four years younger than Zerelda, Dr. Reuben Samuel was a quiet, passive man who was more or less a doormat to his wife's desires. This suited Zerelda's increasingly domineering personality and desire to control her family without interference from a husband or the law. He was another Kentucky man, and he genuinely cared for Zerelda's children. Jesse, now six, was on his third legal father, fourth including Tillman West, and had been moved around countless times, including several separations from his mother. Many historians believe that it was their unstable childhood which likely led Frank and Jesse to their lives of crime. Growing up in a house that owned slaves likely contributed as well. Jesse was used to seeing some humans as inherently inferior to others. Known as the peculiar institution in the South, slavery was considered a normal, even a coveted part of Southern life, where farmers depended on this stolen labor for economic stability. Growing up in the border state of Missouri in the 1850s, Jesse and Frank heard the slavery abolition debate from the time they could talk. As slave owners, the James family was solidly pro-slavery and solidly pro-South. After Zerelda's marriage to Reuben in 1855, the boys started to focus more on their educations. Jesse began school, and Zerelda taught them how to work the farm. In their downtime, the boys explored the wilderness around the farm and learned to ride horses and shoot guns. Jesse grew to have a lifelong love of horses and became an excellent rider. He was also known to be an avid reader throughout his life. The boys were well known around town. Jesse was the mischievous social brother and Frank was the more reserved and serious brother. Meanwhile, the family was growing. Zerelda gave birth to Sarah Louisa Samuel on April 7, 1858, when Jesse was 11. The 1860 census shows that the James family sold Nancy, Mason, and Hannah. The family acquired new slaves as well, a 16-year-old girl, a 13-year-old boy, an 8-year-old girl, and two little boys, three and one. The farm was doing well. Despite their own childhood being moved around and separated from family, the James family had no sympathy for the plight of the slaves they bought and sold. That was the way things were and should be, according to pro-slavery Americans. Jesse, Frank, Susan, and Sarah likely went along to slave sales with their mother and stepfather and certainly were used to their presence in the house. 1860 saw fierce debate on both sides of the slavery abolition debate. Missouri, which had been added to the Union as a neutral border state, was home to fierce sympathizers on both sides. On April 12, 1861, 
Shots sounded at Fort Sumter in Charleston, South Carolina. Three days later, on April 15, 1861, President Lincoln called for 75,000 federal troops to stop the insurgency. The Civil War had officially begun. It didn't take long for the conflict to reach Clay County. On April 20, 1861, less than two weeks after the firing on Fort Sumter, local secessionists marched on the nearby town of Liberty and seized the federal arsenal. Frank, now 18 years old, joined the Confederate Army as soon as he was able. Jesse, however, was only 13 and too young to join up. This frustrated Jesse, who felt deeply loyal to the South and to his family. He continued his education and helped on the farm, eagerly awaiting word of his brother and hoping the war would last long enough for him to join. That winter, Zerelda and Reuben had their second child together, John Thomas Samuel, on December 25, 1861. Frank was eventually captured by Union forces, but he was sent home after he came down with the measles in early 1862. That seems like a very kind thing to do with a war going on. Maybe it was because the Union looked like it was going to be victorious and wanted to preserve any sense of cohesion that they could. Or maybe the Union forces feared a measles outbreak among the men and did what they could to contain the disease. Whatever the reason, the conflict was far from over. On March 15, 1862, the Union sent the first permanent troops into Missouri. To Unionists, this was a move to keep the peace. To pro-slavery Confederates, it was an occupation. 14-year-old Jesse and his family saw the North as imposing their rule and trying to destroy the Southern way of life. The Union soldiers were, to the James family, an invading and occupying force. To make matters more complicated, these federal troops were largely fellow Missourians. This wasn't just North versus South. This was neighbor versus neighbor. Once again, Jesse and his family felt betrayed by their own community. It appeared the Union was winning. April 26, 1862, Frank and Reuben were hauled to the city of Liberty to swear their allegiance to the Union, as was customary for the time. Jesse watched as Southerners were forced to renounce their beliefs and their way of life. He wasn't the only one who resented the Unionist push in Missouri. Groups of bushwhackers were increasingly raiding Liberty and other Union strongholds. Bushwhackers were Confederate guerrillas, small, self-organized bands of rebels using irregular behavior, improvisation, and any means necessary to get the job done. Bushwhackers were specifically named for their tendency to hide in the brush and otherwise use the land to their advantage. In other words, they fought dirty. Dirty is putting it lightly. In the case of Missouri bushwhackers, the goal wasn't just to win the war, but to demoralize those they saw as being on the wrong side of the justice, the Union sympathizers. This tactic was incredibly effective. And the hot seat for this activity was in Jackson County, Missouri, directly across the river from Clay County. Jesse and Frank were entirely enamored with these rebel heroes. When Frank James found out about the bushwhacker leader William Quantrill's successful raid on the Union in spring of 1863, he supposedly shot his gun into the air and shouted, Praise Jefferson! Not long after, in 1863, Jesse and Frank joined Quantrill's bushwhackers. Jesse, who was just 15, was too young to go into battle, but he still helped out where he could. One story recounts that while cleaning and loading guns for the bushwhackers, Jesse blew off the tip of his finger. Ooh, ouch. The James Farm became a central operation for the bushwhackers. Zerelda supported them wholeheartedly and even served them meals. Jesse looked up to these fierce young men who rode valiantly into battle against what they called the tyrannical North. To him and to other Southerners, the bushwhackers were defending what was rightfully theirs, their home and culture. And they were successful at it. Jesse wanted to be a part of that, too. Part of the bushwhackers' success was due to local sympathizers like Zerelda, who were willing to hide them, give false information to Union troops, and otherwise support the efforts. It also helped that the bushwhackers had spent their entire lives learning the ins and outs of the local terrain. But the Union was not kind to known Confederate sympathizers. In May 1863, they ambushed Jesse and the Samuels farm. 
Jesse was whipped badly, and the house and family were attacked. Zerelda recollected, quote, We found that the rear of the house had been set on fire. We put out the blaze, and no doubt saved the lives of the rest, for the plan evidently was to kill all of us and burn up our bodies to destroy all evidence against them. Dr. Samuels and Jesse were plowing when the militiamen reached the farm, end quote. The men strung Reuben up by his neck to gain information on the whereabouts of Frank and the bushwhackers. He gave in to save his own life. As a result, the Union troops were able to kill five bushwhackers. Reuben and Zerelda were arrested. This was remarkable, as women were not usually targeted or even eligible for arrest. But Zerelda's well-known reputation for supporting the bushwhackers led to an exception. In the interim, 15-year-old Jesse was left in charge of the damaged farm. It was a tense time. He didn't know if Frank had survived. He didn't know if or when his mother and stepfather would come home. He didn't know if the farm would be attacked again. Through all this, he had to look after the farm and his younger siblings. Zerelda returned first. A few weeks later, Reuben came home too. Both had to sign loyalty oaths to the Union. This further infuriated the family, and Jesse's hatred for the Union grew. That autumn brought better news. Frank returned alive and with new friends. Bob, Jim, and Cole Younger. Jesse was relieved to have his brother back and became enamored of these new bushwhackers. He listened to their stories of battle, strategy, and violent glory when they ate at the James farm, and he worked hard to earn their approval. Frank and the Youngers worked with a new bushwhacker who was rising to local power, William Bloody Bill Anderson, who was trained by William Quantrill himself. That name, Bloody Bill, is not an exaggeration. Some verified accounts of Anderson's brutal methods include cutting off both of a man's ears before killing him. Another instance included murdering a former Union soldier who was trying to get medicine for his sick mother. Anderson and his gang left his naked, bloody body in the mud by a creek. Some historians believe this climate of celebrating acts of cruelty, such as these, may have led to the violentization of Jesse and Frank. Violentization is a process where an individual experiences great trauma, such as the attack on the James Samuel farm, and then becomes desensitized to violence. Eventually, in an effort to regain a sense of control, they perform violent crimes against others. Violentized individuals then become chronic violent criminals. Oftentimes, authority figures promote this cruel lifestyle and reward aggressive behavior. Authority figures, including the bushwhacker fighters whom Jesse looked up to. Bloody Bill and his gang were all known for harshly punishing those perceived as too soft, while rewarding those who were cold and brutal. Jesse only got a small taste of being part of the bushwhacker community that summer. After a brief stop home in August 1863, Frank and the gang disappeared again. Still on the farm, Jesse practiced his gunmanship and horse riding while replaying the stories of glory from his brother. He may have gotten news here and there from the community, but while Frank was away, they had no idea of knowing if he was alive or dead. The family had some good news that fall. On October 18, 1863, Zerelda had another child, Fanny Quantrill Samuel. Fanny's middle name was a tribute to the bushwhacker leader, William Quantrill. Zerelda proclaimed how proud she was to finally have a Quantrill in the family. Frank returned in May of 1864 after nearly six months away. Jesse, now 16, was done waiting. He was going to fight. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by The Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. 
The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 platinum jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. And now, back to historical figures. Bloody Bill had grown in notoriety and ambition since 16-year-old Jesse James had first heard of him the summer before. At the height of Anderson's 1864 summer activities, he extracted taxes in goods and money from local farmers and boatmen. His bushwhackers helped, likely including Frank and Jesse. In late summer of 1864, the Union fought back. Their troops killed five of Anderson's top men and many of his best horses. In retaliation, Anderson led his bushwhackers to attack Union soldiers returning home near Centralia, Missouri on September 27, 1864. Jesse and Frank were most likely with him on this raid. Anderson and his men forced everyone off the train. He then ordered the 22 soldiers to strip, even those on crutches or nursing wounds. He proclaimed, quote, You are Federals, and Federals scalped my men and carry their scalps at their saddlebows. It didn't matter that these men had nothing to do with the local crime. All Union soldiers were the enemy. Onlookers later described the scene as a carnival of blood. No soldiers escaped. Anderson even made cruel jokes, including laughter at the twitching clock hands produced by a dying man's legs. This was the leader Jesse learned from and wanted to emulate. Local federal troops arrived on the scene in response to the massacre and pursued Anderson's gang. Jesse and the bushwhackers killed over 120 pursuing Union troops. Only three bushwhackers were lost. Jesse killed seven soldiers himself, including Union Major A.V. Johnson. The bushwhackers decapitated many of their casualties, joking that no dead man ended the day with the head he had that morning. They likely went home to the James farm to celebrate. The bushwhackers were unstoppable for a month. Anderson had made enemies due to his brutality, and even Confederates were wary of him. This meant he received less help as the war wore on. Lieutenant Colonel Samuel P. Cox of the Union Army specifically targeted Anderson and his guerrillas, staging a plan to taunt Bloody Bill and lure him out. Anderson couldn't resist the taunt and led Jesse and the Bushwhackers straight into an ambush at Independence, Missouri. It was a bloodbath, this time for the guerrillas. The Union got their prize, Bloody Bill Anderson himself. They decapitated him, just as he'd decapitated his victims the month before. Jesse and Frank, along with the Cole brothers, managed to survive. But their leader was dead. The Union had taken even more from them. More bad news was on the horizon for the bushwhackers and their cause. President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1, 1865. The bushwhackers continued to fight. But by May 13, 1865, the war was officially over. The South had lost. In May of 1865, 17-year-old Jesse rode to Lexington, Missouri to surrender and take the mandatory ironclad oath Missouri required of former Confederates and Southern sympathizers. It allowed them to stay legal, free citizens, but stripped them of their right to vote. On his way into Lexington, Jesse was recognized by Union soldiers as one of Anderson's bushwhackers, so they shot him in the chest. In Jesse's view, he had been tricked and mistreated once again by the Union abolitionists. And that wasn't the only reason he felt that way. Due to the new voting restrictions on former Confederates, Missouri was politically turning northern due to these new laws. This was despite a large pro-slavery, pro-Confederate population. Injured now in both body and spirit, Jesse went into hiding and was nursed back to health by Zerelda Mims. She was his first cousin on his father's side, but named after his mother. She went by Z to avoid confusion. Despite being two years older than Jesse, Z was enamored with his Southern heroism and good looks. Jesse was sandy-haired, blue-eyed, and known to be quite charming to those he liked. The two quickly became engaged. Jesse healed physically, but the bushwhackers weren't ready to give up the fight. 
the James and Cole brothers reunited to form their own gang and hit the union where it hurt, their newly formed bank system. On February 13, 1866, the James Younger Gang committed the first armed bank robbery in history. Frank James, Cole, and Jim Younger and nine other gang members stole $62,000 from the Clay County Savings Bank in Liberty, Missouri. They killed a 17-year-old boy in the process. 18-year-old Jesse was unable to participate as he was still healing from his chest wound. That summer, on July 26, 1866, Zerelda and Reuben had their final child, Archie Peyton Samuel. Perhaps Jesse spent time with his new younger brother as he healed up at the family farm. It wasn't long before he was back to health and back to his old tricks. On October 30th, 1866, five members of the James Younger Gang robbed Alexander Mitchell and Company Bank in Lexington, Missouri of $2,000. Some accounts place 19-year-old Jesse and 23-year-old Frank at the robbery, though the brothers claimed to have been out of state at the time. Most likely, Jesse and Frank participated in the robbery and were simply covering their tracks. Jesse loved planning the robberies and relished the message that they sent to the Union. He also liked the influx of cash and soon developed fine tastes in clothes and horses. That same fall, in October of 1866, Jesse gained a powerful new ally, John Newman Edwards, the editor at the southern-leaning paper, the Kansas City Times. Edwards was a former Confederate soldier and wholeheartedly supported Jesse and the gang. He wrote about them often and urged Jesse to send his own accounts to the paper. Edwards was instrumental in spreading the Robin Hood myth associated with Jesse James. While it's true the James Younger gang stole plenty of money from the Union, there are no accounts of them giving the money to anyone outside the gang. The robberies continued alongside the budding mythology. On March 2, 1867, the James Younger Gang hit Judge John McLean Banking House of Savannah, Missouri. On May 22, 1867, they robbed the Hughes and Wasson Bank of Richmond, Missouri to the tune of $4,000. They shot and killed three men. The following year, on March 20, 1868, when Jesse was 20, the gang stole approximately $14,000 from the Nimrod Long Banking Company of Russellville, Kentucky. At this time, the gang didn't have a leader so much as a group dynamic. Jesse often said Frank was the brains of the operation, but sources point to Jesse being the main planner. He may have publicly deferred to Frank, though, as he was one of the younger gang members and likely wouldn't have wanted to overstep his bounds just yet. However, Jesse was the most public face of the gang due to Edward's writing, his own letters, and his tendency to talk and show off during the robberies. Jesse also had a flair for the symbolic and a penchant for revenge. In 1869, 21-year-old Jesse got word that Samuel Cox, the scout responsible for the death of Bloody Bill Anderson, worked at the Davis County Savings Association in Gallatin, Missouri. He wanted to hit Cox where it hurt, so the gang planned another robbery. By now, the gang had established their technique. Jesse went up to the cashier at the Davis County Savings Association and asked to have a $100 banknote exchanged. When the cashier went to write a receipt, Jesse aimed his revolver and fired two shots, one into the man's chest and one into his forehead. He also injured the clerk. Normally, they asked for the money before they shot anyone. Jesse had a signature line, give me the money or, quote, I'll blow your brains out. This time, though, the shots were lethal, as they were supposed to be, and the gang had to run. James and Frank quickly fled from town on horseback, splitting from the group. Their pursuers fired, and Jesse's horse reared. Jesse fell from the saddle, but his foot caught in the stirrup. The horse dragged him 30 feet before he got loose. Frank pulled Jesse onto his own horse, but riding double wasn't easy. Luckily, just a mile away, Jesse spotted a fine replacement. Holding the owner at gunpoint, Jesse stole the horse and they escaped. However, they had not actually accomplished Jesse's goal. Cox hadn't been working as cashier that day. Instead, the cashier was a prominent local man named John Sheets. 
Missouri Governor McClurg posted a $500 reward for each of the James brothers. For the first time, Jesse's name appeared in the press clearly connected to a crime. This was $200 more per person than was customary, and this was on top of additional rewards offered by Davis County, Sheets' widow, his bank, and the people of Gallatin. The following summer, in June of 1870, 22-year-old Jesse sent a letter to Edwards at the Kansas City Times. It was addressed to Governor McClurg. In it, Jesse claimed not to have conducted the Gallatin robbery and that, quote, some of the best men in Missouri could prove his alibi. Witnesses placed Jesse at the robbery, but he had several friends and family members write fabricated accounts to the paper to prove his innocence. The letter served another purpose, to play on Southern sympathies. Jesse went on to say, quote, I know well if I was to submit to an arrest that I would be mobbed and hanged without trial. The past is sufficient to show that bushwhackers have been arrested in Missouri since the war, charged with bank robbery, and they most all have been moved without trials, end quote. Many ex-Confederates felt the Union government treated them unfairly and continued to punish them for their Southern alliance. Jesse aired the grievances that many felt. The cards were stacked against them and the government was corrupt. On June 3, 1871, someone stole $6,000 from Cordon, Iowa. Jesse, now 23, was again linked to the crime. He submitted another letter to the Kansas City Times. This one dated June 24, 1871. In it, he said, quote, I have no doubt, but the authors of some of those pieces published against Frank and I are the perpetrators of the crimes charged against us. Jesse claimed innocence and again emphasized that he would turn himself in if only he felt that he would have the right to a fair trial. The gang began committing robberies in broad daylight. The James' younger names were well-known and commonly connected with plenty of crimes in the area, but for the most part, they got away with it. But they didn't get off entirely scot-free. At the June 24, 1871 robbery, Frank was injured by some stray buckshot, which damaged his lungs. The James brothers laid low for the winter of 1871 while Frank healed. The gang planned the next robbery for April 1872 in Columbia, Kentucky, They had many supporters in the area, which provided cover and places to stay while they scouted routes and planned the robbery. Despite their careful planning, the robbery was a botched job. The bank cashier, R.A.C. Martin, had locked the safe to prevent theft. Even after 24-year-old Jesse shot him, he refused to open it. They fled with no loot, and the gang's name was attached to the murder of R.A.C. Martin. In September 1872, they mounted another robbery, this time at the annual industrial exhibition in Kansas City. The large number of fair attendees and heightened security made the robbery quite ambitious. Pulling this off would make a real statement. The James Younger gang could rob even highly public, highly protected safes. Three men in cloth masks, Jesse likely among them, rode to the ticket booth and stole the money from the cash box. When the cashier pursued them, one of the bandits fired, injuring a little girl. The bandits made off with $972, not a bad haul, but had they arrived half an hour earlier before the fair treasurer stopped by, they would have made off with $12,000. Timing is everything. Edwards ran a sensational editorial in the Kansas City Times shortly after in 1872, entitled The Chivalry of Crime in direct reference to the former bushwhackers. The article read, quote, These men are in Jackson, Cass, and Clay. Few there are left, who learned to dare when there was no such word as quarter in the dictionary of the border. Men who have carried their lives in their hands so long that they do not know how to commit them over into the keeping of the laws and regulations that exist now. And these men sometimes rob, but it is always in the flare of day and in the teeth of the multitude. The 19th century with its sybaritic civilization is not the social soil for the men who might have sat with Arthur at the round table, ridden at tourney with Sir Lancelot, or worn the colors of Guinevere, end quote. The imagery of medieval heroes didn't just play on the imagination. 
It also referenced a popular Southern trend of holding medieval tourneys as fundraisers. Edwards and James appealed directly to the sentiments of the pro-Southern locals. It also pointedly cast the James Younger gang members as heroes who were simply but tragically caught in another time. After all, no one would begrudge Sir Lancelot for riding into battle. Jesse and Frank, too, were truly just lost heroes, or at least that was the mythology they promoted. Jesse continued to write letters affirming his innocence while also justifying the bandits' ways, which Edwards continued to publish. Quote, We never kill, only in self-defense. But a man who is damned enough fool to refuse to open a safe or a vault when he is covered with a pistol ought to die. There is no use for a man to try to do anything when an experienced robber gets the go on him. If he gives the alarm or resists or refuses to unlock... He gets killed. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, let's continue our story. In the summer of 1873, 25-year-old Jesse James and the James Younger Gang got bolder, and they selected a new target— the Rock Island Railroad between Des Plaines and Council Bluffs, Iowa, for the Monday Express Line. Train robberies became more popular because national banks used trains to move large amounts of cash across the country. The gang expected to get around $10,000 from just this one robbery. On July 21, 1873, the six bandits rode their horses to a strategic location on the Chicago, Rock Island, and Pacific Railroad train route. A natural bend in the landscape and the track meant the train would have to slow down for the curve. It was also far enough away from settled areas and towns as to not alert suspicion. These were the tactics that the gang members had all learned back in their bushwhacking days. The bandits broke into the handcar house and stole supplies to pry out a pair of railroad spikes. They ran a rope through the holes and waited. Around 8.30, the 5 o'clock express from Omaha approached. It had nine cars, one coal car, two baggage cars, a smoking car, two passenger cars, a ladies' car, and two sleepers. The train slowed for the curve, and the bandits yanked the now unspiked track, displacing it. The conductor immediately put the brakes on, and as the train screeched down the track, the gang leapt out and opened fire. The first five cars derailed from the track, with the first three crashing onto their sides. The impact killed the engineer. Two bandits headed over to the baggage car to take the cash. Two other bandits jumped to patrol outside, and the remaining two bandits headed to the passenger car so that they could rob passengers of their cash and valuables. Jesse, in particular, was known to have fine taste— often holding on to pocket watches and other fineries from robberies. This time, the gang tried something a little different. They all wore Ku Klux Klan masks. The Ku Klux Klan was a racist, pro-Southern, pro-white organization formed by former Confederate soldiers just after the end of the Civil War. By this point, in 1873, though, it had been all but stamped out in the United States, not to come back until the early 1900s. Clearly, they wanted to hide their identities, but there are other ways that a robber could cover his face. By donning Ku Klux Klan masks, then, perhaps, Jesse and his fellow gang members wanted to express that they were robbing this train in the name of the South, or to drive fear into any black people who might have been working or riding on the train. By this time, Jesse had become the regular spokesman and leader for these robberies. He leapt into the express car and used his signature line, If you don't open the safe or give me the key, I'll blow your brains out. The express messenger obliged, but Jesse only found $2,337. The bandits cleared out with their loot. The whole robbery only took about 10 minutes. While the payout wasn't small, it was a far cry from the $10,000 they were expecting. Turns out that the large currency shipment had gone out early, one night before the robbery. But the crime still garnered plenty of attention. The train line sent detectives out looking for the robbers and posted a $5,000 reward for them. This was an unimaginable reward at the time. For the first time, the James Younger gang reached national headlines. Despite the small payout, 
Jesse knew train robberies could be lucrative. The gang hit again six months later on January 31, 1874, this time in Gads Hill, Missouri. They successfully stole $12,000 from the St. Louis, Iron Mountain, and Southern Railroad. Several train lines hired a famous Chicago detective, Robert Pinkerton, to capture the James Younger gang due to his previous success catching bandits. Pinkerton was overseas at the time, but sent an employee named Witcher to Missouri in his place. Despite warnings from the sheriff and locals to keep clear of the James Younger gang, Witcher, an arrogant and naive young man, put on an unconvincing farmer costume and paid a visit to the James farm. He was found dead in a ditch the next day. No one could prove it was James Younger work, but they're associated with the murder anyway. And the threat of it must have shaken Jesse. He decided to finally marry his sweetheart of nine years, Z. Mims. They wed on April 24, 1874. Jesse was 26 years old. Z adored Jesse and supported his outlaw lifestyle, even though she wished she didn't have to worry about him so much. They honeymooned in Galveston, Texas, where it's likely that Jesse staged several stagecoach robberies. Frank, now 31, also got married in 1874 to his sweetheart, Annie Ralston, in Omaha, Nebraska. While authorities accused the James Younger gang of several robberies that year, it was unlikely they performed any outside Jesse's stagecoach raids in Texas. The James brothers were both busy with their new families. For a little while, anyway. On December 8, 1874, after nearly a year since their last big train robbery, the James Younger gang hit the Kansas Pacific Railroad and made off with $55,000. This robbery renewed the train line's desire to capture the James brothers. In January 1875, Pinkerton sent men to burn down the James family farm, believing the brothers were inside. The first attempt failed but the men returned on the night of January 26, 1875, to complete the job. Even though 27-year-old Jesse and 32-year-old Frank weren't at home, plenty of their family members were. Reuben, Zerelda, their 8-year-old son Archie, and a young black servant, Ambrose, were all on the farm when Pickerton's men threw a container with flammable liquid into the house. Not knowing what it was, Reuben kicked it into the fire, The container exploded, sending shrapnel into the room. A piece of shrapnel caught both Reuben and Ambrose, wounding them both slightly. A larger piece of shrapnel slammed into Zerelda's arm and broke her wrist. But it was little Archie who got the worst of the blast. After a miserable night of pain and anguish, he died. That same day, January 27, 1875, Zerelda had her arm amputated at the elbow without anesthesia. While she had always expected to outlive Jesse and Frank due to their banditry, she was devastated by the unexpected loss of her sweet baby boy. In the aftermath of the attack, Jesse and Z decided it was time to leave the limelight. In early 1875, they moved to Edgebridge, Tennessee, near Nashville. Jesse struggled with the isolation from his Missouri family, but enjoyed being able to go out in public and openly support Southern politics. And he and Zerelda were working on expanding their family down in Tennessee. On August 31st, 1875, when Jesse was 27, Z gave birth to their first son. The couple named him Jesse Edwards James, undoubtedly honoring Jesse's good friend and ally, John Edwards. However, they were living under aliases to protect the family, so the child went by Tim Edwards. Little Tim grew up not knowing that his father was Jesse James. Six days later, on September 5, 1875, the James Younger gang robbed the Huntington Bank in Huntington, West Virginia. They made off with somewhere between ten dollars and $20,000, more than enough to support Jesse's growing family. Things were quiet for the next year for Jesse, though he and Z were certainly busy with a new baby. He couldn't stay away from the saddle for long, though, and on July 7, 1876, the gang robbed another train in Rock Cut, Missouri, this time for $15,000. But Jesse wasn't his usual jovial self. A witness quoted Jesse refusing to drink water from the train, fearing it was poisoned. Jesse, only 28, became increasingly associated with his growing paranoia. 
Normally, after a successful mission, the gang would disband for several months, sometimes up to a year. This time, though, they were seen together again as early as August 2nd, 1876, just a few weeks later. This robbery was ambitious, but not because of the amount of money or even security in the bank. This time, Jesse and the gang chose to target a political figure, Adelbert Ames. Ames was a prominent abolitionist and Union military man during the war. He then became governor of Mississippi, where he strongly and unpopularly supported black rights. After being driven out of Southern politics due to his pro-abolitionist and black rights stances, Ames returned to the family home in Minnesota. He was a well-known figure who represented everything Jesse stood against. Jesse plotted a crime similar to those of his early bushwhacking days. They would hit Ames on his own land. They would be making a statement that Northern Unionists were not safe in Minnesota, just as abolitionists had not been safe in Clay County. The Gang of Eight headed to Minnesota in late August 1876 to begin around a month of extensive scouting and research. They posed as livestock buyers and split up their group to keep suspicion down while they charted routes. The gang didn't exactly blend in, though. Various reports indicated their expensive clothes, fine horses, and clear southern accents. While doing their research, the gang discovered Ames was a stakeholder in a local bank. It hadn't been part of the original plan, but they decided to hit the bank before attacking Ames's farm. On September 7, 1876, just two days after Jesse's 29th birthday, five bandits, led by Cole, galloped down the streets, hollering and shooting. But they were only creating a diversion, while the three additional bandits, led by Jesse, entered the bank. Jesse brandished his pistol and ordered the cashier to open the safe or he'd blow their brains out. That's when things started to go wrong. The cashier recognized the famous robbers and stalled. He told them that the bank had a fancy time lock and could not be opened. This was true, but the safe was actually unlocked. The gang believed him though. No one bothered to check. While Jesse tried to decide what to do, one of the other bank men made a run for the door. The bandits shot at him but he made it out and sounded the alarm. Outside, things weren't going well for Cole either. He and his companions relied on their usual method of firing their guns and shouting to drive people inside. By this point in 1876, though, the public had a much better general knowledge about bank robberies, and so locals had firearms stashed and waiting inside. They even used the buildings for cover, shooting back at the bandits. Adelbert Ames was, by complete chance, near the town at the time of the robbery. His military background gave him the skill and coolness to help direct the gunmen firing against the bandits. The James brothers joined in the fight, but it was a losing battle. One young bandit died. Frank James, as well as Cole, Bob, and Jim Younger, sustained bad wounds. The bandits fled, with the Youngers and Coles forced to split up. Bob's heavy wound slowed the Younger's progress, allowing authorities to easily catch up. Bob died in the process, and authorities arrested Jim and Cole. The James brothers fared better, but it wasn't easy going. They rode hard for nearly two weeks, stealing horses, undergoing horrific, unrelenting rain, and going days without food. Frank was still injured, but in the end, they escaped. After this failure in the fall of 1876, Jesse and Frank relocated their families again in Tennessee under fake names. The James brothers were known to be pleasant and well-dressed. Jesse, always one to brag, even claimed he knew Abe Lincoln's son. Jesse and Z had a pair of twins on February 28, 1878, when Jesse was 30. This joy was short-lived, though. The twins died shortly after their birth. Their death certainly didn't help Jesse's increasing tendency toward dark moods and paranoia. Still, Z gave birth to their daughter, Mary James, on July 17, 1879, when Jesse was 31. Baby Mary, like the rest of her family, went by an alias. Even with two small children at home, Jesse couldn't resist the call of his old bandit lifestyle. He recruited a new gang, now just the James gang, and the crimes began anew. 
On October 8, 1879, the James Gang stole $40,000 from the Chicago, Alton, and St. Louis train at Glendale, Missouri. It was just like old times, Jesse and Frank, a new gang, and train robberies. However, two things had changed for 32-year-old Jesse. First, he became increasingly paranoid, even calling for the death of some of his own crew out of suspicion. Second, many of his new recruits were civilian men, not former bushwhackers. Some of the recruits, including Bob and Charles Ford, had been enamored with stories of Jesse and joined up based on the romantic idea of outlaw life, not because they had any real skill. This was a problem because the civilian recruits lacked the stealth and awareness to keep from getting caught. As a result, it wasn't long before one of the new recruits' carelessness got the better of him. On September 7, 1881, two days after Jesse turned 34, authorities arrested gang member Bill Ryan. Bill Ryan and Jesse were known to socialize in public settings. The brothers knew it wasn't long before the police connected the crime back to Jesse, and thus also discovered Frank and both their families. So this September 1881 heist was the gang's last train robbery. After just three years in Tennessee, the James brothers decided it was past time to relocate once again, this time up to Kansas City. The authorities were back on Jesse's tail, and the current governor was cracking down on banditry. He posted a new reward for the capture of the James brothers, dead or alive. A fearful Jesse decided to move his family yet again. In December of 1881, they relocated to St. Joseph, Missouri. He took a new alias, but kept in touch with his old gang members. This proved to be a big mistake. Two of the newer recruits, Robert and Charles Ford, wanted that reward money. On April 3, 1882, the Ford brothers joined Jesse, Z, and their two children for breakfast at the James home in St. Joseph. The house still smelled of home cooking. Z and the kids were in the kitchen getting ready or cleaning up. Jesse stood up to straighten a picture on the wall. Robert brandished his pistol, aimed for Jesse's head, and shot him, hitting him right behind the ear. He fell to the floor, dead. He was only 34 years old. Reporters and police reached the scene soon after. Robert and Charles wanted their reward. At first, the lawman didn't understand. He looked at the body, then asked, My God, do you mean to tell us this is Jesse James? Z, distraught, confirmed Jesse's identity for the police. This was how eight-year-old Tim and three-year-old Mary learned for the first time that their father was actually Jesse James. Jesse was so famous that authorities put his corpse on ice and sent it on a national tour before he was finally laid to rest. In 1882, his old friend John Newman Edwards published a loving obituary, cementing Jesse's image as a Southern hero alongside that of a bandit. The greatest outlaw in American history was dead. The authorities never caught him. In the end, it was treachery and greed of his own men. All of Jesse's work to depict himself as a victim of Northern tyranny and the Robin Hood of the South paid off. Folklore immortalized him as a romantic hero, with countless films and movies recounting his robberies. Even during his life, though, Jesse James was a figure associated with terror, robbery, and cruelty. He was not shy about his approval for slavery or the Ku Klux Klan. Jesse attacked public and private property and actively used his status and robberies to make political statements against the North and the Union. Many of Jesse's tactics would be considered terrorism today. There are plenty of parallels with modern extremist groups and white supremacists. Jesse's actions, along with other bushwhackers and outlaws, left a mark on the Civil War and continuing political relationships in the United States. Jesse James was undoubtedly the most talented, gun-shooting, horse-stealing bandit around, and that made him a formidable, calculating opponent. However, he was also the victim of childhood trauma and increasing instability in his later years. Jesse James may not have been a hero, but he is truly a legend.
Thank you for joining us for another episode of Historical Figures. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Historical Figures, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com. A new episode drops every Wednesday, but if you subscribe, you don't have to remember that. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. And once again, thanks for listening. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Paul Mahler, additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Taylor Cleland and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy.